Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, thank you Ed, although quite strange because this is the first year without the Edinburgh Fringe for obvious Mm. and important reasons, but hitting August and realising, oh, it's not even that I won't do a show it's that i won't get to see and be (laughs) in other shows Mm. is something that's only really just hitting me even though when it was officially Mm. cancelled i was relieved and glad that this was the decision that was being made for everyone's safety but it's still odd i can i can say it's absolutely shouldn't happen but it's it's still an odd 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 how are you ed uh, yeah, I'm fine. I've had a very busy week at work, so I haven't really done as much culturally as I would like. It's not like I'm working like super late hours or anything. It's just that like when you get to the end of the day and you've been you know hunched over a computer for eight hours, it's kind of like you you kind of don't really want to do anything, especially when those eight hours have been fairly intense. So I haven't done as much like this week as I I would have liked. Although I did read. Um, for the first time ever a a comic by Dave Gibbons of of Watchmen fame called Batman vs. Predator which is uh, a comic in which Batman who is uh, Bruce Wayne for people who don't know uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) sorry spoilers Um, who who, uh, strikes heart into criminals who of course are a cowardly and superstitious lot and uh, in Batman vs. Predator the Predator comes to town and decides that he's going to take on, you know, the toughest people in Gotham. So initially he arrives and sees that there's a uh, a heavyweight boxing match on television, and so he goes and kills the winner, then he goes and kills the loser, then he starts going after, like, the gangland leaders who start speaking out against him, and eventually, you know, works his way up to Batman, who, of course, is the toughest person in Gotham. And... Uh, the main reason I read this was because uh, Susanna Polo, who's the comics editor for Polygon, she was tweeting about how good a, this comic was, particularly... The, I, I think they've had Batman fight the Predator like three or four times at this point, but this was the, the first instance, and she said it was far and away the best. And the reason she was tweeting about it most recently was because now the Disney owned Fox and Predator is a Fox property she was saying basically there's no chance that Disney would ever consent to this comic being reprinted again because the legal wranglings of one of their properties appearing in something owned by DC slash Warner Brothers would be just too difficult to work out so uh, I bought it because I thought well these are going to disappear fairly (laughs) quickly then so I might as well grab one Uh, and it was like Honestly, honestly, it is the best version of that idea that you could possibly imagine of the whole kind of, like, cynical, oh, let's have these two established characters fight each other, in much the same way that, like, the Alien vs. Predator comics that were published around about the same time and were, like, a big hit and, you know, led to the the very good video games and the very bad movies um, were all kind of of a similar thing where clearly the people involved are 
talented writers and editors and artists who are thinking very seriously of like how can we make this work and not feel like the, like an obvious cash grab and there is something that feels very right about the idea of like oh like and this is something that I think the editor points out in the the, the front uh, the foreword to the collection where she, they basically say you know we said would it be out of the realm of possibility for us to have a alien that wasn't the predator that was like an original creation show up to Gotham and start killing people and have to be fought by Batman and they're like yeah no it's not really that so the realm of possibilities so let's just do this as if it's an original story but we just happen to be playing with like an iconic horror monster and uh, it's really really good I highly recommend anyone uh, track it down I think you can still for the moment see it on like e-readers and things like that you know digital comic stores and the physical copies are still out there but uh, yeah they're they're probably going to disappear fairly fast so like that's an early recommendation for me if you like a good fun pacey romp in which Batman and the the Predator go blow to blows really you can't go wrong <laughs> with, the, with the first edition of Batman versus uh versus Predator the first collection rather not first edition that's crazy <laughs> I imagine that's that's gonna be really expensive I haven't got one of those how about you uh Emily how's your kind of like we culturally been well and uh not huge strides made in consuming culture this week mm-hmm. for me because I had to get on if I was going to make my self-imposed deadline of getting whatever I had managed to get together for what I would have done for the Fringe online, so that's been my week, and I might talk about it a little bit later in recommendations for a shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> if you're on a podcast, why can't why not shamelessly plug what small offerings you have from time to time? But I have been listening to a little bit of Mike Babiglia's podcast, Working It Out, which I think is quite charming and has some nice guests and in particular one of the more recent episodes was with Sarah Cooper of from Mm. TikTok impersonator fame Um, and she is really interesting to listen to particularly about that because she's a very funny comedian in her own right but has just obviously like blown up and gone viral because of her really fantastic take on things. I did also really really enjoy um seth simons who i think i've um, raved about before but the most recent offering from his uh humorism newsletter independent Mm. comedy journalism is he's had colin jost month (laughs) (laughs) where he's just kind of doing a deep dive on him in alignment with jost publishing his like memoir autobiography a very punchable face Mm. um and the final, yeah, this kind of pièce de résistance of uh, Seth Simon's Jost Month is stunning because it kind of looks into the psychology of a sellout, basically. But it doesn't really blame Jost for it hugely. It basically says, fun enough, Lorne Michaels is probably an abuser, um, given everything right. we understand about the work practices. And it's really compellingly written, very well researched. And I'm just a huge fan of Seth Simon. So I'm in this weird place where, like, culturally, I'm like, oh, I really, I personally miss the fringe on several different levels. But on several, several different levels, I can also appreciate how the fringe is far from ideal. And reading this about Lorne Michaels and thinking, like, God, do I actually feel okay about watching SNL going mm. forward now that, like, the depth of 
detail, which has always been around, really. And I feel kind of like reassessing myself in terms of it's not that I ever thought SNL was a happy, shiny people place to work, but I thought it yeah. was at least, you know, people were. I mean, this is why this is this is the naive thing in this world, Ed. But I thought people were at least respected. Mm. But there are some really like really telling quotes in terms of people saying, you know, it's basically run like a cult where you're you don't know what time it is. You're not allowed to sleep. You're constantly um, kept in a state of fear and that someone else will take your position. I just thought, oh, my God. Yeah, this is. And Seth Simons does a really incredible job of saying, like, this is not by accident. Lorne Michaels designed it this way. Yeah, and I think that also kind of feels in line with, you know, when people talk about the contracts you have to sign at SNL where, you know, it's for seven years, but if he offers you, like, a show of your own, like, you get to refuse it once or twice, but then you have to do the third one where there is, like, something incredibly weird and controlling about the whole situation he's got set up there, which everyone who's worth there kind of seems to like you say talk about in that kind of cultish way of being like oh you know like everyone's just kind of like works through it and it's like a real crucible and a trial by fire and all this mm. sort of stuff i kind of like, don't think comedy is meant to be like that really no does it have to be <laughs> whoever said that seems like it should be a fun time yeah you'd think and i think this is something that is to use the e word rather than the p word for a change this is endemic to the TV industry and the, and the film industry and I think there's this idea of overall in terms of creative work there is this conflation and equivocation of experience with suffering mm-hmm. and, and it's the idea that like you know to gain experience therefore it has to be like incredibly hard and how much you have to sacrifice whereas it's like no what if we treat everyone really well and they just get better at what they do and there's no stress Apart from like, mm. you know, and it's not to say that everything will be utopian. No, like there'll still be conflict and people will disagree, but you can do that when everyone's had eight hours of sleep and health benefits, you know, rather than like shackles, mm. you know. And I mean, the thing about SNL is that I'm realizing, well, they actually just work in a permanent state of crunch. Um, and it's amazing. Yeah. That, and it's amazing that more people haven't died on their watch to be quite frank but it's this idea of yeah experience equals suffering and that and i hate that (laughs) i really despise that because i think what that Mm -hmm. what that creates is just more people who are like well because i suffered i get to be the top now but you don't get to be where you are unless you suffer because that's how i did it but i also don't want you to i think you should suffer more because even then because I want to keep you down. Do you know what I mean? It's it's this perpetuating this cycle of of a certain kind of workplace abuse. And I think that's what I think we need better terms because I think a lot of people think abuse is something that only really happens in the private personal sphere. Mm-hmm. But you know, or it's personal private stuff happening at workplaces rather than the actual structure of workplaces particularly in creative industries, I mean, and in comedy, because I just think everyone's a lot funnier when they've had a meal. And I, it's things like John Mulaney being able to sum up like his college life by saying, oh, I love playing the game. You know, does everyone hate me or do I just need to go to sleep? 
but I think I don't think he's really talking about college Ed <laughs> uh, so we'll go on to the news for this week and uh, the first piece of news uh, I have is a very encouraging piece of news which was the announcement of the launch of Defector Media yes. um, for people who are unfamiliar on the background of Defector Defector is a company put together by 18 of the writers who used to work at Deadspin Deadspin the uh, website that you know nominally about sport but which kind of wrote about everything that they wanted to for a, for a good while there originally part of Gorka Media when Gorka was uh, you know destroyed surgically by uh, Peter Thiel they became part of I believe they're called Geo Media now and Geo Media owns a bunch of sites including the Onion and the AV Club I think still owns them and Deadspin was one of theirs and for a while at least there was kind of an uneasy detente between the Geo Media people and the people who still worked at Deadspin like the people at Deadspin just basically kept doing what they'd always been doing and the people at Geo Media were like off in the background but uh, you know as as time went on the geo media people became more involved in saying hey you know you should stick to sports you shouldn't write about politics the editor was fired and then the rest of the journalists all quit last year uh in uh protest as they should because um what they were doing to that site was uh horrible and uh, it still exists but is in a very re- uh, reduced tour form and i've taken to thinking of defector media their new offering as like the, the good deadspin getting out of the lodge uh you know they're all going to get to <laughs> they're going to get to start writing what they want again and uh what's especially good about it is it's you know, it's a subscription-based uh, model based on people subscribing. Uh, I subscribed on day one because I used to love what Deadspin did, and I loved so many of their writers and some of the stuff that they were doing. I really want to, you know, support what they're going to do in the future now that they're independent and they can do their own thing. But also, you know, they all share in the profits, so they can all pay themselves a living wage based on their subscription rates. They also have the right to remove the editor by like popular vote, so it's which is uh, an incredible amount of power to give to the people involved in a, in a in a website. This kind of real collectivist approach to producing content on the web, and I'm just really excited to see what happens with that. I think they've already had a lot of subscribers, so hopefully they'll be, you know, set for at least their first year of operation and, you know, can kind of really get off the ground. And they've got a podcast launching next month and then the site itself launches in September. And I am really, I'm just so, so excited to see what, you know, Defector get to do and hopefully see them, you know, kind of prosper whilst Deadspin exists as this, like, horrible husk of its former self wandering the world. I mean, it's so nice to hear about something starting up rather than getting shut down. Mm, yeah. It makes such a difference. And yeah, I'm really excited to see what they do. Um, and I'd like to get involved sponsoring them down the line uh, when, I'm, when I'm able to. And it's, it's exciting to have, like, particularly because of a political <laughs> sort of difference, shall we say, that they're able to get together and, and set up their own thing. And more power to those kids. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, just in terms of where media is now, where websites are, so many websites have been like, as as was discussed in the like congressional hearings that happened this week, so many websites have just been decimated by being fed the lie about pivoting to video and like the, the completely false uh, metrics they were given from Facebook about how much money they could make from pivoting to that sort of stuff you know like there is it's getting to a point now where a lot of these 
organizations and the people who are involved in this period are trying to forge a path forward and you know not everyone has the kind of like um reputation and kind of like the background and the sense of loyalty that obviously deadspin readers have for, for the writers of that you know they can't all launch in this way and have ten thousand people subscribe on day one or whatever but it's at least like a promising developed and think okay that's something that you know a bunch of people could do maybe a bunch of people who write for sites now that are being mismanaged or that are you know being shut shuttered for no good reason because the ad revenue is low even though they still you know turn a profit or whatever you know like it'd be nice to think that this is a model that other people could follow in the future so we'll go on to our next piece of news and our next two stories are very awards heavy because people are still giving out awards the the world does not stop uh we'll start with the uh, the baftas which had a virtual ceremony hosted by uh, richie deawadi which was uh you know a perfect choice uh, as everyone said you know if you could if you were trying to kind of like uh you know kind of real ha- really hang a hat on the awkwardness of a virtual ceremony you could not find someone better for that than Richie Dayawadi. Chernobyl won a bunch of awards for like best uh, drama for best actor for Jared Harris who's incredible in that show. Uh, I know a favorite of yours Staff Let's Flats mm. uh, did incredibly well. Uh, Jamie Dimitri won I think best male performance in a comedy and also the the show itself won best comedy uh which is which is really wonderful. And uh, Glenda Jackson won for uh, Elizabeth is Missing, which was her first performance in 28 years, I believe, because yeah. of, you know, the fact that she was in Parliament for all of the time. <laughs> but um, that's nice to come back to your day job, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and get given about a surprise BAFTA. <laughs> Were there any other kind of awards from the ceremony that really leapt out to you as being particularly, you know, kind of great to see? I think overall it was less about who won or who didn't and more the actual order of ceremonies because Mm. it all happened over a Zoom. There were a few presenters at BAFTA um, in London, but then everyone was kind of Zooming in and it just seemed like everyone was really relaxed and having a laugh and um, Mm -hmm. people were getting dressed up and, you know, it's just there's something really lovely about seeing Sean Clifford receive her award for Fleabag genuinely very surprised done up in a nice frock in like I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge's garden because I think they all got together <laughs> um to have a you know a socially distanced team <laughs> team team roundup mm-hmm. and there was something about the intimacy of that moment um and my friend and I were discussing it and that there's something about it seems very it's more personal and when you're not surrounded in a big hall full of absolutely everyone and it's a big industry do, you can see that these are moments that really touch people and just making a quick speech over Zoom. And also, like, you know, you can be muted instead of the orchestra playing you off, which is quite handy. But there was something <laughs> a bit more human about it, weirdly, it felt to me. And that was what I liked about it. And I wonder if, you know, viewings will go up because... <laughs> there's a bit more of a connection there weirdly rather than kind of like seeing this monolith of the industry it is literally just some people at home yeah and, and i think it's again you know like the defector thing it's interesting to think of it as being like a model for these sort of things going forward because obviously yes. the you know the emmys which we'll be talking about in a second the emmys um 
will be happening in a few months. The Oscars are, are down the line, and I, I'm not sure they'll be able to have kind of like the full Oscar ceremony, even you know the delayed one in May or whenever it is they they pushed it back to. Yeah, I, th- I think something like this is an interesting model for how you do that, and for again, like you know, it can create those real real human moments, and I think particularly for all of us who have been having you know zoom calls and skype calls for work or just to keep in touch with people like that's a a visual language we've all become incredibly accustomed to uh (laughs) at this point so it really feels like you know like people would or you would think you know people would respond to that a little bit more than all the sense of the pomp and circumstance and you know there, there is something kind of like oh we're really still all in this together about it when they have to adjust these big bashes into something that is so small scale and just someone in their home talking into a camera. Yeah. Uh, so as I said, you know, the Emmys are, are happening later this year and the Emmys were, uh, nominations came out this week and there were some uh, interesting results there. Uh, probably most uh, notable uh, was that Watchmen got the most nominations of any series with 26, you know, obviously lots of technical awards and things like that but it was also nominated for uh, acting and uh, and best uh, I guess best miniseries and you know that's very very exciting that was a show that came out towards the end of last year it was obviously a bit of a sensation uh, certainly amongst uh, you know people I know like that was all anyone wanted to talk about for weeks was how good Watchmen was against all uh, mm. odds but it was also you know it came out right before Christmas you wonder like is it something that's kind of going to get ignored when it comes time for all the big awards to come out is it a bit too genre and too just plain weird for the for something like the Emmys mm. to pay attention so it's nice to see that it wasn't ignored and that you know it's exploration of you know of the notion of policing and you know kind of like all the stuff that it was doing there in terms of the history of American race and all, all the stuff about the Tulsa massacre that's such a big part of that show you know it's it's hard not to imagine that you know the last two months or so of, of activism and um, people protesting didn't make bring that show back up into people's minds to think oh like they were talking about a lot of this stuff uh, nine months ago and uh, yeah it all feels just so so prescient and that probably boosted it at the, at the end in addition to it just being you know a great show on a delivered on a really fantastic scale as, as HBO have become used to doing for sure, it is heartening that, I mean, we can argue on the internet as to how radical it actually is, mm. but it's definitely one of the most radical things that has been offered on TV in some time. And it is also just an exquisitely made show. Um, yeah. Which is which is great. And yeah, just sister night for everything. Yeah, I'm just double-checking to see if... Uh... Surely Trent Reznor must have got a nomination. I bloody hope so. Surely. No, not Trent. Trent Res- Resbor. That's not his name. <laughs> I mean, that's what you would say if you were trying to dismiss him. Yeah. But... <laughs> Golden Globes. God, he's been nominated for a lot of things, hasn't he? Yeah. That's still one of the craziest things to me, that the, the guy from <laughs> who's saying, I want to fuck you like an animal, <laughs> is now just like a critical darling who's constantly <laughs> nominated for mainstream awards. There's hope for us all, Ed. It was great to see Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross get nominated for Emmys, continuing their quest for like the least likely EGOT in 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 modern times. Um, 
I'm not sure how tuneful a play they would produce on Broadway would be if they wanted to really go for the uh, for the Tony, but you know I think they're most of the way there. In other news, in terms of, of nominations, uh, Zendaya got a, a nomination for Euthoria, yeah. another kind of big big show for HBO. Or maybe not like big in the sense of like got great ratings, but it was a show that I remember getting a lot of buzz on social media when it came out. And you know, in terms of the last couple of years, in terms of representation, it's always nice when they recognise someone who's a, a great performer, for, you know, who's a woman of colour, and who is in a, a genre of show that generally doesn't get that much attention from the Emmys. You know, something that is so pointedly about, like, the teenage experience. That's not something that generally the Emmys spend a huge amount of time thinking about. Yeah, it's encouraging uh, to see. Also, there were some debuts at the Emmys in terms of streaming services getting <laughs> a bit of attention. The Mandalorian got a nomination for Best Drama as well as loads of like technical ones, which was, I think, a bit of a surprise. Not because the show's not good or anything or that it's not popular. Uh, as we've talked about, it was very popular uh, legally and illegally last year. Uh, a show that everyone tried to see however they could, as soon as they could. But, you know, again, like Watchmen, it's kind of that thing of thinking, you know, is this too genre for, for what the Emmys are usually about? And But I guess maybe I'm just not thinking it in a post-Game of Thrones mindset for that sort of stuff, because clearly, like, that kicks the doors in on any kind of, like, pre- uh, presumptions about what genres can be considered worthy for the Emmys, uh, which is good, because, you know, it'd be awful if they became this, like, really stultified thing that didn't pay attention to the way that, you know, popular art is evolving and what people are taking seriously. But also, The Morning Show got a load of nominations, uh, particularly for the acting in that show, for Apple which is not that surprising, mainly because it, it was like a very high-profile launch for that show and it's got a lot of people who are beloved by the Emmys, you know, like Steve Carell, uh, most notably. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> frequent punchline Quibi got <laughs> 10 nominations in the Emmys, which is uh, kind, of, kind of hilarious to think of, mainly because they are uh, 10 awards uh, focused in... <laughs> like three categories which were all the short form obviously because you know they are quick bites they're only only a few minutes long but yeah they have like four nominations in outstanding actor in a short form comedy or drama series four in uh actress in a short form comedy or drama series and then two in outstanding short form comedy or drama series which is really just uh an example of what happens when you're the only person seriously competing for something (laughs) <laughs> I mean, God bless. What if what if Quibi turns out to be the little streaming service that could? Mm. I would be really interested to find out what their FYE, uh, sorry, their FYC campaign was. Because my suspicion is the reason they did that well is one, you know, as a lot of people have, have written about, they have a lot of money that they are, you know, maybe not spending particularly judiciously. Uh, so they can throw a lot of money at a campaign for, you know, these underserved uh, categories that they have a really good chance of of dominating. But also, seems like they would probably have just sent, like, DVDs or a screener link to people so they could watch these on their TVs. And they probably thought, oh yeah, this seems fine. As yeah. opposed to, you know, forcing them to watch them on their phones in a format that literally no one likes. 
uh, <laughs> and which pretty much everyone treats as kind of, you know, if you're watching something on your phone, it's really just kind of like, well, you know, it's convenient and I'm out and about. It's not like, oh, this is how I like watching things. Yeah. Uh, if we were if we were to cut to the bone of why Quibi has uh, been such an unmitigated disaster, apart from these uh, 10 Emmy nominations, which, you know, good for them. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, honestly... If this wins Caitlin Olsen an Emmy, I'm fine with it <laughs> because <laughs> she's 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 incredible. One of the funniest people working, and if it wins her an Emmy for something called Flipped, which who knows what the hell that is, then fine, <laughs> I'll be happy yeah. with that. <laughs> the one thing about the Emmy nominations, Ed, is that even though you know we're saying like yes, it's great about Watchmen and that is radical, you know. The, the women of Pose have been ignored yet again. And Billy Porter is the only mm. person from Pose who's been nominated. And I find it difficult to believe <laughs> that Billy Porter, who happens to be one of the few cis actors in a show that is about and starring majority trans people, isn't some kind of snub. And I think, you know what it is? I think it is cowardice in that the Emmys don't want to get drawn into an argument about trans rights and representation mm. which is really poor let's be honest because they they are women mm. <laughs> they deserve to be acknowledged and there's been some really important points being made sort of mainly going around twitter about misogynoir and trans misogynoir as well um because you know this is the group of people who are most likely to be murdered in the modern day head so that and that they're not represented again for another year is, um, yeah, hugely suspect, really. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we'll go on to our main topic this week. And as the episode title will uh, let people know, it's my birthday this week. And as is, as is tradition on this show, uh, that means it's kind of a freeform episode in which, you know, I can pick any topic, even if it's not necessarily within our, our usual purview. And so uh, what I've decided we're going to be talking about is the Uncharted series of video games, which have been my main focus for <laughs> the last couple of months since, since starting quarantine. Uh, there were series that I knew about because obviously it's a you know, very big and successful series. And I remember very distinctly when the first one came out, uh, I was working at Rare back in the UK at that point, and there was like a month period of time where the first Uncharted came out, and I want to say Half-Life 2 Episode 2 came out within like a month of each other, and it was, those were the, literally the two games that everyone was talking about that I word of. Even though I hadn't played them, it's like everyone was just losing their minds over these two games. Mm. Uh, so I have a very... I've always had a very, like nostalgic feeling to them just because of thinking about that time in my life you know the first job I ever really had in the games industry in any serious way uh, being so closely tied to Uncharted but I'd never played them prior to self-quarantine but uh, Sony made the first three available as a free download uh, for anyone basically and so I downloaded them and I was like oh I'll give these a go these seem like fun and then the fourth game Uncharted 4 and the fifth one, Uncharted Lost Legacy, were also going cheap because they're always in Sony's constant sales. So I've just spent most of the last couple of months, you know, in my downtime playing through those five games. And I thought, these are really fun, interesting games that have a lot of kind of interesting things going on under the surface and in terms of how they change. And I thought, 
they'd be they'd be really fun to talk about. And then you know when I found out that you had, had played through it as well, then obviously yeah, it seemed like the perfect thing to talk about this week. So uh, before we kind of like delve into far, what's your history with the with the Uncharted series, Emily? Well, I have to say I haven't played through all of them. It's just uh, it's just four for me. Okay, Thieves End. But digging into um, Naughty Dog, I didn't realise that they were a jam beforehand, mm. and it, I'd completely forgotten, even though it's sort of nudged at in uh, in Uncharted Four, that Crash Bandicoot and Jack and Daxter on their books, mm. and I loved those games growing up. Um, yeah, I also just think kind of hilarious that they started off as jam software because it's jason rubin and andy gavin <laughs> it literally stands for jason and andy's magic software which is wow kind of up there with harold and kumar go to, go to white castle really <laughs> anyway but i i have basically of their big titles i have played at least one of each mm, of them yeah and in terms of where I came into it, I just think they are some of the most intuitive in terms of actual gameplay and mm. kind of controller play. I really like because they're not kind of heavily cluttered. Like the commands are quite simple, but there's a nice ratio of, particularly in Uncharted and The Last of Us, of kind of story to gameplay. And this is, I'm speaking as someone who only played the last of us one right not the last of us two mm-hmm. and it's funny because obviously i think they gained they gained so much acclaim with the last of us but i think uncharted in terms of having stakes but without being it's the romp isn't it ed it's it's that kind of indian indiana jones-esque although you know nathan drake is a descendant of francis drake and i don't think we have much uh, <laughs> much insight into like Francis Drake's not a good guy. <laughs> mm. And some really like bizarre moments, but I think the artwork's beautiful. And again, it's like, look, I really enjoy Hitman. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to be, you know, be like, it's actually not ethical to kill people, Emily, for profit. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I know. <laughs> but I think um, Uncharted as well is just such a fun game to play, even if it has a very mm. similar mechanic to The Last of Us. And is always beautifully rendered and just makes me laugh. Like, I think Uncharted 4 is like pleasingly knowing and meta and kind of looking back over the series and sort of Nathan slash your sort of conquests and adventures together. Um, and I just found uh, the fourth really fun to play and also just kind of ironic because the level that I got really stuck on was the Scotland level (laughs) I was like where is this meant to be is it down the road from me it looked kind of highlandsy I don't know but yeah I and I think it like Uncharted is very well written I think because there's not a lot of really horrible dialogue and and it just it always just brings you back to the game I don't feel like I'm going through cutscene after cutscene although I did watch um Jim Sterling's kind of watch along review of the trailer and he just says like it's not worth it his job's not <laughs> worth it if you told me where the treasure was but i had to go through all of this to get it i'd just be there on the sofa with her eating from a bowl of fruit <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, Jim, thank God for you. Yeah, I think in terms of the fourth game in particular, I think that was the thing that was a real marked change for me in playing through them all in order because the first two games are very much of the romp. There's not a huge amount of focus on the story. The story that is there is pretty much all relayed in cutscenes. Everything else is you are running through an area and you know at the end of it you kill a bunch of people or you have to solve a puzzle and then you move on to the next bit and there's not a huge amount of 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 stuff outside of that and then the third game kind of starts to introduce some of the stuff that you start to see more of in four like there's one bit where nathan having survived a plane crash is left in this desert and an entire chapter of the game is just you wandering around this desert like following a mysterious figure in the distance that you're trying to find but they keep disappearing and you like think oh i found an oasis and as you reach it it disappears into sand and then the the, the chapter basically just ends with you i think you, you just like lose consciousness and then someone saves you and it's like i thought of it as real kind of like budget Hideo Kojima sort of thing of <laughs> basically saying we're just going to have you kind of like play through a thing that's really unpleasant for you to play through right now to advance the story because Nathan controls like shit because he's just getting weaker and weaker and you're being battered by the winds and it's one of those things where you look and think oh, the, the idea is there for trying to do something that's a little more kind of like a combination between story and gameplay but you haven't quite got the uh, the technology in place where you haven't quite stumbled across it and, and then going into 4 you really start to see some of those ideas kind of like bear fruit because there's that there's that one chapter where after the in media res opening where you're on the boat and then you get knocked out and then you play through you know 12 hours later you get to return to that bit and continue the story where you're, you wake up on the beach and Nathan's clearly very injured and he's kind of like stumbling around and he can't jump very high where that feels like a much more successful implementation of that of that approach and that idea that uh, I really I, it was really nice like seeing that development and you can clearly see the way in which the success of The Last of Us really altered their approach to Uncharted 4 where there is so much more focus on like the optional conversations on parts of the game that are literally just chapters where you're like going around a house trying to find things you're not fighting any enemies or you know you're, you're trying to sneak out of an orphanage as like young teenage Nate and stuff like that where it really does kind of feel like they have found that nice middle ground between wanting to tell the story about these two like brothers one of whom thought the other was dead for years and years coming back together and they're like exploring like that relationship in a way that feels genuinely like authentic and, and is largely down to you know what how good nolan north as as nathan drake is and how good troy baker is as, as sam drake but it's also because the, the like you say the writing is really good like you really feel like this is you know kind of like the dialogue isn't kind of like cringy or or like totally utilitarian everyone feels like fairly characterful which is not something that you necessarily get from a, a lot of games even games that are like 
well written in terms of like having a good story will have dialogue that really just feels like they just kind of like bashed it out saying uh, we just need to tell them that they need to go and get this scepter and then you know take it to somewhere else so these ones the, the, the even the incidental dialogue in the Uncharted games tends to feel kind of like alive in a, in a way that is really distinctive and I think is a large part of why those games became popular because the characters are like fun to be around like Sully is a really fun character to spend time yeah. with I think in terms of the series as a whole I think maybe the biggest criticism of them which 4 completely overcomes because it's the one that really nails it is that they have really weak villains mm. 4 has a fantastic villain Rafe is a really it's a really good performance he's such an arsehole <laughs> like he's so eminently hateable you know this kind of like rich kid who's you know you, you meet in prison he completely screws you over and like leaves you thinking that, that Sam's dead and everything like that and then you just are competing against him for such a long time and he's like really distinctive and, and you, you genuinely care about the quest to kind of get to uh, Libertalia, this uh, pirate city before him and, you know, kind of claim the the prize and everything. But in the first three games, they are, like, the first one, the, ma- you th- the first three, they all have this problem where there'll be a reasonably compelling sub-villain who, at the end, you, d- like, dies unrelatedly to you. <laughs> And then you have to fight a boring main villain. So in the first one, there's like a rival, um, there's a rival treasure hunter who you keep encountering and who's like always following, dogging you and everything. You know, they're always on your heels. And their boss is like a vaguely Kelsey Grammer esque kind of like, you know, kind of rich, refined person who's pursuing this uh, lost treasure of, of uh, Sir Francis Drake's for nefarious purposes and at the end, and then he dies like in a cutscene, like the interesting character who you think, oh this is clearly the main villain and then the guy, and then the final fight is, you have to kill a bunch of guys until you can run at the main villain and punch him in the face <laughs> and it's really it's a really, it's a really anticlimactic ending to this to this big epic thing that you've gone on. And then the second one, you're betrayed by another thief in the opening of the game, and then you think, oh, this is the guy that I'm going to be like chasing after. But then he's helping a like ex, like a, a Russian or you know, vaguely former Soviet Union general who's trying to get to Shangri La, and then the. Uh, the, the the thief kind of like dies in a cutscene and then the final fight is you having to run around an arena blowing up these blue sacks of goo that then splatter the the Soviet general I wasn't that invested in fighting this guy I was invested in the guy that betrayed me uh, and then like the third one the third one's all about like this uh, rivalry between Sully and an older English woman and it's like it, it, it's not it's it's a little more they're a little more kind of like characterful but like she dies in quicksand and then you just have to get into a fist fight on a falling ledge against her henchman <laughs> so it's kind of like you've not you've you, you you've got a compelling villain but you've have them be someone who I would never fight because they are an old businessman or a you know or an old woman <laughs> so you have to give me someone to fight at the end who's not that interesting 
and I feel like with Rafe in Uncharted 4 and then um, with the villain in Lost Legacy who's this kind of like Indian general who is trying or, or you know an Indian insurgent leader who's trying to start a civil war and who is you have like repeated altercations with and you understand what they're trying to do you understand that they're a complete fanatic and they're just like really terrible like they're, they're in both of those instances you have good villains who you actually are invested in the fight against as opposed to you know one character having the motivation that you then don't actually get to fight and don't really feel like you have that much agency in overthrowing at the end mm, yeah and isn't, doesn't Graham McTavish play like two different villains across two different games? very likely <laughs> yeah I think I think that's correct yeah <laughs> which I mean people have got range and maybe he's great to work with but is it just me that's like um <laughs> Maybe, maybe maybe give someone else a shot if it's not a repeated a repeated character. I don't know. <laughs> no, but yeah, also I feel like the final fight against Rafe in Uncharted 4 is so good, where you're sword fighting him. It's a real pain on the harder difficulties because you die in like two hits. But it is very fun, like, you know, he where you have to judge which direction he's coming from and hit the right button to kind of like parry him and then hit it. And it's like, it's a very satisfying final villain fight as opposed to some of the others, which really are just, they are, they're like so video gamey of like, okay, you run around a circle, then you wait for him to stand by the blue sack, you shoot it, it explodes on him, a little cutscene plays, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, I like also, I don't feel like, again, like games mechanic. Uh, game mechanics i don't feel super frustrated if i like on uncharted there doesn't really seem to you can kind of if i remember correctly it's not like you have a set amount of lives you can just kind of keep going Mm -hmm. yeah and and you don't get thrown back too far and i think that's it like you it keeps you close to it and you and it makes you want to play more and determined to to do it which i like rather than kind of basically having an argument with a game and then a sulk for, for maybe months before I go back <laughs> to try and play it. I think also you you mentioned Hitman earlier. I think the big change between the first three and the fourth is just how good the stealth becomes in that series. Yes. Because in the first one, there are opportunities for you to perform stealth attacks, but they're generally fairly few and far between, and there is definitely a sense of like, ah you don't really need to do it it's fine <laughs> if you if you mess it up then you can just go loud and you know you'll 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 muddle through whereas i spent so much of uncharted for just like particularly like the scottish bit that you talked about there's like one bit where there's this little structure where there's like a dozen guards or whatever and i spent so long just kind of like hiding in the tall grass watching where everyone's roots were and thinking okay so I go and sneak over and I take that guy out then I wait by the wall and I can pull that guy down and no one will see and there is something just so satisfying about that in a way that you know it's really satisfying when in Hitman you finally orchestrate a kill without anyone seeing you and you know you kind of like plan out the routes and everything there is just something so base level satisfying about pulling off that stuff and and they really improve the stealth in those games so much in terms of the use of long grass in terms of just just how great it is you know to kind of like dangle from a ledge wait for someone to walk up to you and then just like pulling them down like that sort of stuff is all just so mechanically fun to do Mm. and i think in terms of um contemporary complaints about naughty dog products 
particularly the 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 tweet from Jason Schreier about the game about games being too long at the moment, which was very much about The Last of Us Part Two. That was kind of the feeling that I got from playing Uncharted Four because the first three games they're all they're all like eight hours. They like they don't take that long to kind of like really blaze through, and Uncharted Four is very much like yeah this is probably going to take you 16 to 18 hours to do and i think for 16 to 18 hours isn't like massively long for a lot of games but i feel like it's quite a lot of time for the kind of game it's trying to be which is like yeah an adventure game where you're barreling ahead you're going to all these different locations like if you would just played through the straight story instead of just you know like if you're not that worried about the collectibles and things like that it still feels like it takes quite a long time and and for me the moment when it really set in is when like there's a point towards the end where there's a betrayal or like you suddenly realize oh sam's been lying to you about his motives about all this sort of stuff that's going on and Nate gets kicked off a cliff and he has to kind of work his way back to catch up to him and it's one of those moments where if this was a movie that would happen like 30 minutes from the end of the movie so that you know that there would be enough time for the betrayal to like have a bit of an impact and you know then you the, the big thrilling action set piece and the reunion and things like that and that'd be all great but in like a game like this, it then takes you like another four hours until you reunite with Sam. And I was just kind of like, this, like pacing wise, this doesn't quite work. This needs to be much quicker. And it kind of felt like the, that was my only major problem with Uncharted 4, which is otherwise such a fun game. It's such a, a, a you know, the story's so well written. And, and particularly when you get deep into all the Libertalia stuff and you're, like, learning about how all these pirates, like, built a society and then completely turned on each other and all that sort of stuff is just, like, so well done that by the end of it, I was into that stage of, like, I just want to finish this game. (laughs) It's been really fun, but, you know, it's taking such a long time (laughs) in the same way that I kind of feel sometimes about, you know, really long books that are... You know, like really good books, like really great characters and everything like that. But you you get to like page six hundred of eight hundred, and you're just kind of like, I still love this to go. Yeah. <laughs> still. <laughs> oh yes, almost almost too much. I did not go need to go for the super size or the big gulp. Uh, it was great to begin with, but now I just need to pee, and it's probably all going in the bin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why I liked Uncharted: The Lost Legacy probably the most of all of them mm. because. That's it's got the same engine as four. It has a lot of the same mechanics, but it takes you about eight hours to complete. Yeah, a few weeks ago we talked about how I've been watching some of uh, Dragon Ball, and yeah, the reason that I decided I was going to start watching that is because uh, I started. I I've learned about what's called Dragon Ball Z Kai, which is basically. They took Dragon Ball Z from the 90s, all 300 episodes of it, and then cut it in half. <laughs> Basically said, oh yeah, we're getting rid of, like, we're going to replace all the damaged frames that look terrible, but also we're getting rid of all this extra stuff that we didn't have any reason to have in there because we were just trying to pad out the story. Sorry, here's, like, a version of this that's a bit more watchable. And that's kind of how I felt about 
Uncharted Lost Legacy, it was like Uncharted 4 Kai, where they just basically gone, okay, yeah, it's just going to be pretty straightforward, you're going to get all the great stealth, and it's going to look gorgeous, and you're going to have this one bit where you're just driving a jeep around for ages, and it's all open world, and it's so much fun to explore, but also, you know, you can knock this out in a day if you like, it's not going to take you yeah. like a huge amount of time to do, and there is something to be said for the problem of a lot of games just being very badly paced these days like it's not so much that they're long it's that you know they maybe have too much stuff for the story they're trying to tell uh and also i think one of the things about uncharted as it currently exists as you know a game series that is trying very hard to become a multimedia entity is the fact that we are getting a film version or we are supposedly getting a film version either next year or the year after and it's one of my favorite things the uncharted movie because it's something that has been in development for so long that mark Wahlberg has gone from being someone considered to star as nathan drake (laughs) to playing sully his older mentor (laughs) (laughs) which is like he's gone through the entire michael caine sleuth arc (laughs) in in the course of 13 years it'll be dick van dyke and mary poppins if we're not careful (laughs) Uh, do do you think that there's like any possibility that an uncharted movie will be good because i feel like the ingredients are there but at the same time like it's one of those things where if you just break down what uncharted is to a lot of people it's like oh it's so so it's indiana jones but modern day it's like yeah kind of you know, it doesn't feel like there's, uh, the, you know, the, the thing about it that makes it unique and fun is that you get to play as that character. I mean, Tom Holland's charming, right? Yeah. Mark Wahlberg, not so sure. Um, mm. I think that's it. It's going to be difficult. I think it's a unique challenge for a director to mm-hmm. to ha- have a film, like, because do you run with the visual look of the game? Or is everyone just going to sit there and be like, oh, I'm annoyed I'm not playing it? Or mm-hmm. do you try and do something different and then people are like, what's what's really the point? Is it sort of the plot of the game? Because there could be, you know, a, what a film can give to a game is probably more plot, particularly a game like this. And look at something like Tomb Raider, for example, um, which has gone through, you know, the sort of bombastic tone and then the sort of, you know, the inevitable gritty reboot. Mm. You're not going to get modern day Lara Croft hawking Lucasade. No, no, unless it's like, <laughs> you know. I mean, I could see that advert happening, but it's going to be like, yeah, this girl can, like, <laughs> drink whatever, you know. <sighs> Will it be good? I think, really, if they made it funny, if they, if they really lent into the kind of lightness of it and managed to find something that I mean, like you say, sort of modern Indiana Jones could be good, but I worry that in the games they don't run into the politics as much. And mm-hmm. I do think now, like in terms of Pirates Treasure and Francis Drake, I think I think it, it has a it has a big audience, potential audience, and that's why it's being made. But I don't mm-hmm. think many of the of the people who played the original games would be particularly happy. And I and I and an origin story as well. It's like what we, but we know he's going to be fine because <laughs> he yeah. has to go and do everything else. If it were like, oh, one last job or something kind of adjacent or something that could be like a 
I don't know, like a 3.5. Even mm. then, could it be good? I'm trying to think what it would have to have for me to walk away and be like, you know what, that was really fun. Yeah, I was trying to think who would I cast mm. as Nathan Drake because, like, I know back when the movie was first announced, which was really, literally like 2007 or 2008, like as soon as the game came out, they were like, "Oh, you're working on a movie." Like a fan suggestion was Nathan Fillion. Like yeah. everyone, like particularly then when he was still, yeah, like still like relatively young and like in really kind of like top physical condition post um, Serenity. Like, like that seemed like a good fit for him. I, I think the person that should play Nathan Drake is uh, Kyle Chandler. Ooh. But he should also play Sully with uh, uh, Irishman kind of digital aging technology because I feel like he would be perfect for both those roles. He's like got the institutions and the charm. He's also kind of irascible, you know. Like if, if I think about his performance in. Peter Jackson's King Kong where he's playing like the swashbuckler guy in the movie that they're making like that's that's kind of close to the tone of what you would really want for a for an Avon Drake performance I think yeah I like I like Kyle Chandler that's good basically just don't give it to Chris Pratt and I'm happy yeah Chris Pratt I think would be too much of an arsehole because <laughs> yeah. that's kind of his cinema that's that's like that's not to you know, kind of like disparage him too much, but that's kind of like his brand is like the lovable dickhead, and I feel like that's a little too far for what Nathan like. Nathan Drake's whole thing is like, uh, he's like, you know, he's kind of just a dude. He's just a dude, isn't he? He's just trying to get by and rob things, but also he murders thousands of people. Mm. Um, which, of course, is the other interesting legacy of of the Uncharted games is like it being a poster boy for the notion of ludonarrative dissonance of the idea of the work tell of a work telling you one thing but having you like do another thing which is like nathan drake oh he's a lovable rogue you know he's just you know he always falls into scrapes and also you know give him this shotgun and he's going to clear a room in five seconds yeah uh, which is which is never is never not funny to me. Like even in the fourth one, where they really reduce the number of encounters, you know, it's it, there's a lot less murdering tens of people <laughs> than there is in the uh, in the first three games. But like even Naughty Dog kind of got in on the joke by having a trophy called Ludo Narrative Dissonance, which kicks in when you've killed a thousand people. <laughs> like they they they. They're, they're aware <laughs> that, you know, there is something inherently quite strange about the, the conception of the character versus just, you know, the nature of playing a big action-adventure game. Yeah. Although I do I do kind of wonder if there is a purer version of Uncharted that you could make, which is literally just, like, the climbing and the stealth stuff. And then every so often you have to get into a fight or whatever. But, like, that probably wouldn't have been bloodlusty enough for it to really kind of chime with the late 2000s audience that you know it, it found with the first couple of games mm, mm. even though like for me that's the stuff i like the most like particularly by the fourth one i was just kind of like ah oh, is there any way i can get through this without having to fight someone <laughs> like can i just stealth stealth kill everyone and then make a run for it yeah uh, so we will end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well Emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well Ed I am going to be so bold and recommend my digital DIY comedy essay 
yes, I did a portmanteau, Ed, <laughs> as if as if 2020 hadn't done enough for people. I'm also trying to get elastic with linguistics. Um, but it is called Poser, and we'll drop a link, I guess, in the program notes. I'd be really yes, interested to see what, what you all think. Ed was very nice to me about it, um, and I don't think he's just saying things. But I'd also like to recommend uh, The Fringe of Colour, which have... Um, I think they've got films by um, people of colour who would have been at the fringe or who also have not had a chance to go to the fringe, (laughs) which is an important distinction. Um, And I'm really looking forward to um, diving into them because um, Jess Broth, um, and again, sorry, Jess, I I still haven't heard anyone say your name, so I'm going off uh, me me reading it. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, Um, has done incredible work along with like other collaborators like Hannah Lavery to get this initiative off the ground and it shouldn't have been left to grassroots efforts but it was and they've done an amazing job um so my show and uh, fringe of color uh, are my recs cool uh i am going to also recommend a poser it's very good people should check it out as emily said there'll be a link in the description and i am also going to recommend uh, a series of comics by the late congressman uh, john lewis john lewis of course passed away mm. a couple of, couple of weeks ago uh, at this point you know kind of a great uh, civil rights leader wonderful kind of voice of moral clarity for the best part of half a century and he wrote along with uh, andrew aden and nate powell a trilogy of graphic novels about his life and his experience in the civil rights movement called march which is like like i said just covers you know his his life kind of bookended between you know him at obama's first inauguration and him looking back on his experiences with like the civil rights movements in the 60s and all the way through uh, until you know when they were published which would have been like the mid 2010s and they're all really terrific works of of biography they are really entertaining they're beautifully illustrated and they are a real great celebration of John Lewis's life and of his the things that he believed and fought for so uh, it, there's, there's obviously lots of great books out there about John Lewis and you know like biographies and autobiographies and things like that but I feel like this is like a really great accessible way for people to you know if if people are maybe not that familiar with him maybe they certainly I think English people you know they just think of the 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 department store if they hear the name John Lewis um or the incredibly patient man on Twitter (laughs) who responds every time people uh (laughs) tweet about their Christmas ads um it's a great it's a great way to to learn about the great the, the the life of a great man so that's March by John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, and Nate Powell. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.